Friends, as we come to the end of another year and look forward to the next, I want to exhort you as your pastor to be on guard. Watch out for the false hopes that this world will offer you in the days to come. Let no one bewitch you. Let no one beguile you with cultural wisdom or moralistic platitudes or selfish ambition. Let no one lead you astray from the riches of God's wisdom that He has revealed to us in words taught by the Spirit. Beloved, stand firm in the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. Resolve to grow in your understanding of His grace so that being strengthened in your faith, you might serve Him in the obedience of faith. Let's pray together one more time. Father, may we not be so foolish to try and perfect by the flesh that which you have begun by your Spirit. Help us now to see the scandalous and transformative nature of your grace in the gospel so that we might persevere in our faith by the power of your Spirit. Speak, O Lord, and do a work of grace in our hearts through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think if you were to ask any genuine Christian, would you like to grow closer to God next year? I'm sure he or she would say, absolutely. In fact, I think if I were to ask any one of you if you would like to grow in your communion with the Lord, you too would answer in the affirmative. I mean, who, who doesn't want that? If you are a believer, if you have saving faith, you should want that. We all want to live by faith in Jesus Christ and do so in a way that is real and authentic. But not everyone understands what this means or even looks like. Take, for example, what John Elridge says in his book, Beautiful Outlaw. Now, this is a book that many evangelical reviewers have said that it has pushed them to seek a practical day-to-day -day faith that works itself out in communion with God. Sounds good, doesn't it? After all, what could be more edifying than a profound meditation on true saving faith and what that looks like in everyday life. But Elridge, in his book, writes about Jesus speaking to him through hearts, or maybe it's this way, through hearts. Jesus speaks to him through hearts. And here's what he says. I'll find stones in the shape of hearts in rivers where I'm fishing. I've seen them almost step by step up a mountainside when on a grueling climb. Praying in the morning, I'll look out the window and passing by will be a heart-shaped cloud. Dinner rolls, seashells, stains on my jeans. I've won the lottery when it comes to hearts from Jesus. But I'm ashamed to admit that last summer, I grew a little impatient with them. I was going through a trying time 
and seeking God for the answer to many questions, and often he would simply give me a harp in reply. I'd be walking down the sidewalk, and there in the cement see a heart-shaped hole made by a bubble when they poured the sidewalk. And so I actually grew a little dismissive of them. I didn't want hearts. I wanted answers. So Jesus stopped giving me these treasures of our friendships. Last fall, while walking through an alpine meadow, bow hunting, I asked him, so how come you don't give me hearts anymore? I asked it in a sort of pouting kind of way. And at that moment, something gray caught my eye. I looked down mid-stride and there in the grass, about as big as a dinner plate, was a dried piece of cow manure. And guess what? In the perfect shape of a heart. If I didn't know Jesus adores me, if I didn't know he is playful, and if our relationship didn't allow me to receive a playful tease, I might have misinterpreted the icon. But I loved it. It was both, oh, so now you want a heart? And I adore you still. A cow pie heart. That is so Jesus. Friends, this is not how your quiet time should look like. These are not signs of communion. These are symptoms of biblical malnutrition. This is not the Jesus of the Bible, nor is it descriptive of a life of faith that the Bible speaks of. The people of God are not called to look for hearts in the sky and on the sidewalk. No, they are called to trust in the promises of God as revealed in His Word. They're called to obey His commandments. And they're able to do so because God Himself assures them of His power and His presence. Why, even in the Old Testament, a time when God spoke at many times and in many ways, that was the expectation. So listen to these words that God spoke to Joshua after the death of Moses in Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. So open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 1, verses 5 to 8. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Isn't that remarkable? Even during those times when God was doing extraordinary things, extraordinary things, He expected His people to live and seek guidance according to the book, to be a people of the book. And so the book of Joshua begins with a very sad scene, a very grim scene. Moses, the great prophet, is dead. The man who spoke to God face to face as a man speaks to his friend, well, he's no more. And consequently, Joshua, son of Nun, 
that's his father's name, not the online marketplace, the son of Nun of the tribe of Ephraim was then called upon the Lord to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Now, this was no ordinary task, as you can imagine, but Moses himself chose Joshua as instructed by the Lord. Joshua assumed leadership, trusting in the word that the Lord had given Moses, that Yahweh would lead his people to a place of rest, and he would give the land into their hands. But this was not the first time that Joshua and his people were here. No, they were here 40 years earlier. We know that from the book of Numbers. Joshua and Caleb and 10 other men were sent by Moses to spy out the land and bring back a report before they could go in and take possession of it. Now, Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report, but 10 of them came back with a bad report. They were very fearful of the Canaanites. And so they spread their fear and unbelief among the Israelites to the effect that the Israelites began to rebel against Moses. You can read about this in Numbers 13. And Israel was judged by the Lord because of that rebellion, and they were doomed to wander in the desert for 40 years. Imagine that, 40 full years. And an entire generation perished in the wilderness during that time. But now a new generation stood on the brink of entering the land with their leader, Joshua. Joshua, whose name means Jehovah, is salvation. And so what does this new leader do? What does Joshua do? Well, you would expect him to do what he was told to do. Take the people, storm into the land, cross over the Jordan. And we do see that happening in chapters 3 and onwards. But that's not what happens in chapter 2. No, before they cross over and inherit the promised land, the writer interrupts the story. He interrupts the flow of the narrative with a rather unusual story in chapter 2. And in this story, Joshua chapter 2, we are told of a gripping encounter, a great confession and a gracious adoption. A gripping encounter, a great confession, and a gracious adoption. So look, look with me at Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. Now Jericho was one of the most fortified cities in the land. It was famous for its high and impregnable walls. And so Joshua sends out two men on a reconnaissance mission. The text tells us that he sent them off from Shittim where Israel was camped. Shittim was east of the Jordan, and this was the closest crossover site. But these spies land up in a rather curious place. Look at verse 1 again. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Now, before we jump to conclusions about the character of these men, keep in mind that they were spies. It was common for travelers and merchants, strangers to the city, to visit places like these, inns that would offer them both rest and pleasure. After all, this was Canaan, 
Baal was worshipped here. Religion and promiscuous sex went hand in hand. And so this would have been a perfect place to go unnoticed by homeland security. After all, if you're a spy, you don't want to stick out. When in Rome, do what the Romans do. When in Canaan, you hang out with the riffraff and you'll get all the information you need. And so that's what they did in order to not look suspicious. But it turns out that their clever plan did not work. They were not very good spies, were they? Look at verses 2 to 3. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So somebody sitting at the bar overheard something. Maybe someone recognized their accents. Perhaps the king's soldiers were regular customers at Rahab's place. Whatever the case, someone noticed and the information reached the king himself. Verse 3, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. So the gig was up. So much for stealth and discretion. After all, these guys were runaway slaves and not special forces. Then something unexpected happens. You would expect at this point that this common prostitute would gladly hand over these two bumbling spies so that she could express loyalty to her king and to her country and to her state religion. But instead, we are told that she takes these spies and hides them. Look at verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and had hidden them. Now, you could argue that Rahab did not want to lose her customers. That's why she did that. But look at the great lengths she goes to in order to ensure their safety. This is what Rahab says when confronted by the king's men. Look at verses 5 to 6. And then she said, true, the men came to me. It's very clever, isn't she? Rahab knows that if you want to make a lie believable, you must add a little a pinch of truth. True, the men came to me, she says, but I did not know where they were from. Lie number one. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went, the men went out. Lie number two. I do not know where the men went. Lie number three. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. This, one, this one's just for dramatic effect. Right? There's a dash of passion. Just make the whole thing believable. Verse 6, but she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. Now, flax stalks were used to make linen, and so they were long and thick enough to hide two grown men. Keep in mind that Rahab was a professional prostitute, not exactly a model of virtue and truth, but she had certainly learned to lie and to get away with it through her sad trade. In other words, the king's men believed her, believed Rahab's lies, and they got sent off on this wild goose chase into the night. Look at verse 7. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. But before you start getting excited, 
Remember that if the gates were shut, these spies had no way of leaving. But that's not the most important conundrum here. The more important one is, why did Rahab protect these men? This was high treason against the king. This was a betrayal of her people and her land. Now, if she had been caught, she would have died a very slow and painful death. After all, Jericho's economy would not suffer if one prostitute went suddenly missing. No one would miss Rahab. So why take such a risk? Now, at this point, commentators have spilt a lot of ink over how terrible, oh, how terrible it was that Rahab lied. And it's true. She did lie. But then well-meaning Christians start to wonder, oh, does this mean it's, it's okay to lie in, in some situations? Does this set a precedence for situational ethics? Do the ends justify the means and so on and so forth? Well, let me ask you this. Think carefully with me. She's a prostitute. And your biggest concern is that she lies? Of course she lies. What do you expect? Friends, the point of this story is not for us to focus on Rahab's lies. No, the point of this story, like every other story in the scriptures, is to draw your attention to what God is doing in this gripping tale. God is preserving his bumbling people through the sinful woman. And he will bring them into the promised land, but in ways that look absolutely foolish in the eyes of the world. So think about it. Israelite spies sent by Joshua himself, bumbling spies, saved by a prostitute. Or think about the walls of Jericho tumbling down. The walls of Jericho tumbling down just because Israel's music team marched around it. Imagine that. No one can thwart the plans of our sovereign God. He is faithful to his word and all his good purposes will come to pass. Neither the sins of men nor the opposition of the world can thwart his plan. Friends, you've been learning about the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians and a lot of that goes against your sinful nature, goes against your culture. If you desire to follow Christ, you will have to fight your sin. You will have to go against your culture. You will have to face opposition. But be strong and courageous. Just like it says in Joshua 1, be strong and courageous in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Look to the word of Christ, trust in them and obey them. And no matter what, remember that God is sovereign and nothing can thwart his plans for you.
In fact, in Scripture, we often see God using the sins of men to advance His good purposes. This is why we as Christians can sing through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Beloved, isn't it a wonderful thing that we have a sovereign God who rules over everything? Isn't it wonderful that our Christian walk is under His watchful eye, under our Father's watchful eye? Isn't it wonderful that in our pursuit of godliness, our growth in grace, He is personally involved, personally involved, beloved, in making you more like His Son, and He will do whatever it takes. He will do whatever it takes, even if it means putting some of you in some very uncomfortable situations where you will have no other recourse but to look to Him, but to trust in Him. And remember why He does this. He does this because He loves us. Thy blood has pardoned, bought for me, and glorified I too shall be you know what? Step into the next year with that confidence, with that confidence. But something has happened here. Something has happened to Rahab that caused her to put her life out on the line to save these men. And the author devotes the next 14 verses right in the middle of this tense drama to tell us why. See, the author's intent is clearly to focus our attention not on Rahab's lies or the spy's escape plan, but on Rahab's confession. On Rahab's confession. And that brings us to our second point, a great confession we see here in this passage. One of the greatest confessions of faith in the Old Testament is found on the lips of a woman, on the lips of a Gentile, on the lips of a prostitute. Imagine that. Imagine that. Look with me at verses 8 to 11. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Friends, that is a statement of faith. That's a statement of faith because the Israelites have not yet invaded Jericho. And she had an unshakable faith in the work that God was yet to do. It was certainly not faith in Israel's military power, but in Israel's God. She tells the men that the people were melting in fear and were filled with terror so that there was no courage left in anyone. But why did Rahab profess faith in the Lord before these men? The answer lies in verse 10. Look at verse 10. 
for we have heard how the Lord, we have heard, she had heard. This was a woman steeped and soaked in sexual sin and idolatry. She had not personally witnessed any of the Lord's miracle. No manna fell into Rahab's house. No water from the rock. No parting of the Red Seas. She hadn't seen any of that. But she had heard. How would she have heard? Well, maybe through her clients, travelers, merchants, soldiers, other men who regularly came to her for her services, men who brought tales of Israelite victory and the God who led them. The text doesn't tell us how, but she had heard. She had heard of this great God, mightier than all the gods of the land, more powerful than the gods of the Egyptians, and how she had heard how he had led his chosen people out of bondage of slavery and how he was leading them to a place of rest. She had heard of the good news of a gracious God who redeems his people and gives them rest. That's what she heard. Now she had also heard something about this God and his character that this God was a holy God. He was a just God who judged wickedness and sin and that he did not spare the guilty. He destroyed those who did not profess allegiance to him and he was going to destroy Jericho just as he had destroyed those Amorite cities east of the Jordan, sparing no one. Those cities were devoted to destruction and that means everyone was wiped out. It's total judgment. Friends, I wonder what you think of that what Rahab had heard. What do you think of this God who wipes out whole cities? How do you feel about that? As you hear that, who do you identify with? Do you identify with the holiness of God and the rightness of His judgment? Or do you identify with the inhabitants of these cities who were wiped off the face of the planet? All of them, men, women, children, beast, burned to the ground, decimated, total judgment from God himself. Who do you identify with? I think if we were honest, we would identify with those people. And the reason we would do that is because we're sinners and we identify with other sinners. But it's so hard to identify with the holy and righteous judgment of God, isn't it? The atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, calls God wicked. He calls the God of the Old Testament a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. God's terrible to do such things, he says. It's interesting how Dawkins has, an atheist like Dawkins, has so much of a problem with somebody who does not exist at least in his mind. But in Exodus 34, 6-7, the Lord tells us what he is like. The Lord declares himself to Moses saying, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You see, God had made it clear that He would use Israel to judge the sins of Canaan. This wasn't ethnic cleansing. No, this was a just retribution from the Creator God who judged wickedness. And friends, the, sin, the sins of the Canaanites was very great. Moses makes this clear to the people in Deuteronomy 9, verses 5 to 6. Moses says to the people of Israel, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their, their land, their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So you see, friends, Canaan was to be wiped out not because she was bad and Israel was good, not because Canaan was inferior and Israel was the superior race. No, Canaan was going to be wiped out because of her wickedness and idolatry and disobedience to Yahweh. And Israel was no better. And yet God in His sovereign grace had called these people to Himself. Why, not even Israel was to be spared from God's judgment if she abandoned the Lord. Deuteronomy 8 verses 19 to 20 makes this clear. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Brothers and sisters, if you cringe at the justice of God, it's because you have a horrific underestimation of God's holiness and a horrific underestimation of your own sinfulness. But perhaps you're thinking, well, if only God had given these Amorites in Jericho a chance, like one final chance, come on. Well, friends, let me show you how long this judgment has been pending. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16. Genesis 15, 13 to 16. God is speaking to Abraham while he's in Canaan. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. So that's Israel's slavery in Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. That's the exodus. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. That's Canaan. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting without the wrath of God falling upon the Canaanites. 
and now it was imminent. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger. 400 years slow. but will not let the wicked go unpunished. See, Rahab threw herself at the mercy of this God she had heard and put her trust in Him. Hers was not a faith that saw hearts in the clouds or on the sidewalk. She didn't have warm, fuzzy feelings about the Lord. No, hers was a live and active faith that submitted to the lordship of Yahweh, a faith that was willing to abandon everything, risk it all. See, Rahab's confession parallels Moses' own confession in Deuteronomy 4.39. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Imagine what it must have been like for these men to hear Moses' confession on the lips of this prostitute. The Israelite spies knew that they themselves were supposed to step out in faith and take the land. But now they found themselves at the mercy of an unlikely deliverer, one even more faithful than themselves. But that's not all that Rahab's faith did. No, her faith reached out to grab hold of God's covenant love. She reached out to grab hold of his protection. Friends, this is what saving faith does. When you hear about God's wrath and his imminent judgment, reach out to his love. Call upon his mercy. Look to him. Who else can save you from him? Look at Joshua 2, verses 12 to 13. Now then, she said, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Rahab makes them swear an oath by Yahweh to show her kindness in return for her actions. You know, that word kindness is the Hebrew word hesed, which is used to describe God's loyal, covenant-keeping love, otherwise translated in some places as steadfast love. She extended a covenant love to her brothers and expected them to do the same for her. Friends, is your faith like this? Does your faith take risks for the benefit of others? Do you deny yourselves for the sake of doing good for one another? The, the hesed that Rahab asked for was a covenant love that would deliver her from death and destruction. And the men respond. Look at verse 14. And the men said to her, men said to her our life for yours, even to death, if you do not tell this business of ours, then, when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. She asked for a sign, a sure sign, 
a sign by which they guaranteed the truth of the kindness for which he asked. And the sign consisted in nothing but that solemn oath that they made. And they confirmed their, that oath by pledging their life for the life of Rahab and her family, our lives for your lives. Meaning that God would surely punish them with death if they were faithless and did not spare her life and the lives of her family. And so Rahab sends them off on their way and the men confirm their promise once again to her. Look at verse 15. Then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was built into the city wall so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, <clears throat> go into the hills or the pursuers will encounter you and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. You know, the text tells us that Rahab lowered the spies down a window for her house was in the wall. Imagine that. The walls of Jericho were so thick that you could build a house inside a wall. But how would the Israelites be able to identify Rahab's house when the army comes crashing through the broken walls to destroy everyone? And so the spies tell Rahab what to do. Look at verses 18 to 22. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned, and the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Now, friends, there are two interesting things to note in these verses. One, we should note that built into that oath, that promise of deliverance, were stipulations, conditions to continue in faithfulness till the spies returns. There was the promise of salvation, provided she told no one about their plan. And friends, this is how saving faith is. It endures till the very end. It endures till the very end. And number two, Rahab's house was marked by a red rope that hung from a window. Now, why is that significant? Well, if you were an Israelite, when was the last time that you saw a house marked with red so that the inhabitants of the house would be spared from death? When was the last time? The Passover, that's right, the Passover in Egypt, Exodus 12, 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The scarlet cord that marked the house of Rahab and all those in it, just like the Passover blood when the angel of death passed over their houses. Friends, can you imagine what Rahab 
must have endured while waiting for those Israelites to come. Days would have passed while Rahab waited in faith for her deliverance to come, for her full salvation. Friends, this is a picture of the Christian walk of faith while waiting for Christ to come. We know that we have been saved because of what the Lord has done for us in Christ, and yet we wait patiently, don't we, till Christ comes back. Till then, we trust and obey, confessing and identifying with Christ, knowing that our salvation will be complete when our Savior, our judge, returns. And in that time of waiting, we must patiently wait, trusting and obeying God's word of promise that this one who redeemed us will return, that he will return for us, and he will wipe away all our tears. And this brings us to our third point, a gracious adoption. Eventually, the spies returned to their commanding officer And they have a confession of their own to make. Look at verses 23 to 24. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given us, given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. See, Rahab's faith not only surprised the spies, but also encouraged their faith. And friends, this is the the case with saving faith. Haven't you seen that this is a peculiar characteristic of saving faith? It works in a way, in such a way that causes the faith of others to be strengthened. Does that describe your faith? Do you work hard at strengthening the faith of others? I mean, these spies were amazed at the faith of this prostitute, the God who hardened the heart of Pharaoh was able to change the hard heart of this prostitute to put her faith in him. And that bolstered their sense of victory. Truly, the Lord has given all the land into our hands, they said. Now, if we jump ahead to chapter 6 of Joshua, here we learn how this account ends. Israel devoted Jericho to destruction but saved Rahab and her household. Joshua 6 verse 25 tells us that they burned the whole city, but Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua, saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Think about what all of Israel must have thought, really, Joshua, of all the people that you could have saved from Jericho, a prostitute? Friends, I wonder if this is how you think about other sinners. You know, do you see other people as sinners and see yourself as all righteous, that you are here standing in this amazing grace this grace of Jesus Christ, because you earned some of that. You're not all that bad like this prostitute. Friends, we should not be thinking like that, because that would mean that we are relying on our own self-righteousness. No, we stand in this grace because of Christ's righteousness alone. Rahab was saved 
this Canaanite prostitute, this Gentile outsider was not only saved, but she lived among the people as one of God's people. What a gracious adoption into the people of God. Isn't that how you, were, you and I were saved? Graciously adopted into the people of God. Friends, this is how God gathers his people. By his sovereign choice and mercy, giving them the ability to believe, giving them a living hope all by his word. That's how Rahab's faith was born. Don't you remember? She heard. She heard. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This is why we trust in the gospel, don't we? We trust in God's sovereign power to save. This is why we lean on his grace. Because his grace changes us. Remember your own salvation story. Remember what 1 Corinthians says, that he chose the low and despised so that no man may boast before him. You know, everyone in that city heard. You remember Rahab's words? Everyone heard, not just Rahab. Every citizen of Jericho heard, the whole city heard, and even feared. Which means they believed what they heard, right? If you don't believe what you hear, why do you fear? The whole city heard, and the whole city feared. But only Rahab heard. And only Rahab had the fear of the Lord. You see, this is a work of sovereign grace. And friend, if you're not a Christian and you're listening, I pray that you too will hear like Rahab. Friend, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. You see, none of us have kept God's laws perfectly. By the works of the law, no one will be made right with God. But if that's the case, well, how could someone like Rahab, who had broken every rule in the book, be excluded from this ban to destroy everyone? Is God being partial? Is he flexing his law? Oh, sure, he's gracious and merciful, but didn't you say that he will not leave the guilty unpunished? How do we resolve this? Well, Romans 3 resolves it for us. Romans 3, 24 to 26 solves that dilemma for us. God sent his own son to die on the cross in our place to pay the full punishment of our sins and suffer the wrath of God for all who would repent of their sin and put their faith in him. Paul says that God put forth Christ Jesus as a propitiation, as a wrath bearer by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So yes, God passed over the sins of Rahab because the Lord is gracious and merciful and he forgives sins. But Christ paid the penalty in full because God is just and he will by no means acquit the guilty. See, that's why Rahab could be saved from destruction because she put her faith in this God and the promises of his word and she found rest for her soul. She was justified freely by grace 
through the redemption that would come by Jesus. So, is God, is, is he the God of Jews only? Is not he the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. That's what Paul tells us in Romans 3, 29 to 30. Friends, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans 10, 9 to 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Rahab's faith bore evidence that she was truly justified. What about yours? Does your faith bear evidence that you are truly justified? You remember that passage that Chris read for us from James 2, 24 to 26? You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You know, when James says that a person is justified by what he does, he's not saying how one is justified or declared right with God. No, he's telling us how one knows and demonstrates that he or she is a justified person. The way a person knows and demonstrates that he or she is justified is by a life of obedience to God, an obedience that flows from true faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith alone because of Christ alone, but get this, the faith that saves us is never alone. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. It's amazing that when he thinks about works as bearing evidence to true saving faith, two people come to James' mind. Abraham. Oh, we like Abraham, the father of our faith, giving up Isaac on the altar as evidence of his faith. And the next person that comes to my, his mind is Rahab. Imagine that. Abraham and Rahab, side by side. And he says, here's evidence of true faith, of true faith. Friends, this should cause us to examine our own faith. Genuine faith manifests itself in risky obedience. It is marked by unshakable loyalty to the word of Christ above your culture, above your parents, above your spouse, above your employer. Rahab demonstrated a remarkable and genuine faith. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab demonstrated the obedience of faith. You see, it is not ethnicity that determines who a true Israelite is, but one who has faith. See, that's why you have chapter 2 smack in the middle of the conquest story. Friends, don't you see that God had appointed Joshua to be his judge on earth, to destroy the enemies of Yahweh and to give his people rest. But before Joshua judges, Joshua saves. Joshua saves. 
He showed himself to be merciful and saved the one who professed, professed true faith in the Lord. When Joshua spared Rahab, his actions pointed forward to a greater Joshua, one who had come on a rescue mission to save all those who repent and believe in him. His life for yours. His life for yours. And he did this in his first coming. But Jesus will come again. And he's coming in judgment. And that total annihilation of Jericho is just a little glimpse of the judgment to come. And when he returns, we will enjoy rest in its fullest sense. The writer to the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, 1 to 3, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. See, Rahab entered a shadow of the great rest to come, but there is a greater rest to come. And yet, Rahab was part of the people of God. She was not a second-class citizen. You know, Rahab appears in Matthew 1, 4 to 5, in the genealogy of Christ. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, and here's something wonderful that I want you to see. Matthew 1, 4 to 6, should remind us of the scandalous nature of God's grace. And yet how mighty, how powerful, how transformative. Matthew 1, 4 to 6. Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. You know, Nashon was from Judah, and in Numbers 2, he brings tribute to the tabernacle. When you read 1 Chronicles 2, verse 10, he is described as a prince of Judah. Nashon's son, Salmon, marries Rahab. The prostitute marries a prince of the tribe of Judah. Isn't that a picture of your salvation and my salvation? When it comes to our sins, aren't we all like prostitutes committing adultery pursuing other gods, and yet there is a prince of Judah who comes to save us, who marries us. That's how Rahab joins the lineage. Think about this. Where did Boaz, where did Boaz get the idea that it was okay to marry a Moabite woman, to marry a Moabite Ruth as long as she was a believer? Oh, he saw that in his own family, didn't he? His father married a believing Canaanite. What a gracious and glorious God we serve, brothers and sisters. This is the scandal of sovereign grace. The saving sovereign grace of God not only saves you, but transforms you. And this, this is what true saving faith looks like. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that your people would be zealous for good works.
May we walk by faith in your word. May we identify with your people, persevere in suffering, and persevere against all opposition. May we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for you indeed are faithful. Hold fast to us, O Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.